0: Why don't you turn with me to Exodus 33, and I'm actually going to share um, a message today that's, you know, there's different things that I do when I, when I speak. I think as my relationship with God has grown, and as a pastor, and trying to fulfill my role, sometimes I feel like a spiritual nutritionist in that I'm just trying to give you the food that God needs you to have, and, and sometimes that's different than the food that you want to have. How many can say Amen. Like most of us right now are hurting a little bit because we've been eating the food we want to have and not eating the food we need to have. Can, can anybody else feel that way? Is it just me? And so I've been trying to, to put on as much weight as I can because the fast is coming. And uh, so I've been just really high fats, high carbohydrates. I'm really intentional about my plan. I watched The other night, Julie and I were, I guess it was last night, something came on the t v and it was this supplement you could take to help you gain weight and I just want to say if you need a supplement to help you gain weight, I personally hate you and and so and so don 't tell me because that makes me mad, so anyways um so but i 've been packing on as much weight as I can, just getting ready for winter and the fast and that kind of thing and so um anyways um but but I I have a word that, that I want to share that and so when I'm and when I'm delivering words there's different things I feel like there's different focuses sometimes like in the you Asked For It series I felt like God wants us to stop and just talk about issues where you're living um, and try to help understand some and we talked about some really hard topics. Uh, during that series. And then I think there's times that we're given more directional, like this is the direction we're going. Sometimes it's a little more, this is what God's doing. It almost seems informational. And that word kind of seems flat when talking about God, but you understand what I'm saying. Uh, this today for me is a directional word. Uh, and it really comes um, from uh, the The elders' retreat. So the way our church is is governed. If you haven't been through first step, if you, if you haven't been through first step, I would recommend it. Um, but if you haven't been, we we have a group of men that are that are elders. We're we're not a board driven church. Um, uh, in other words, they are not board members. Um, they are spiritual elders. The difference for me is is board members typically operate out of their own wisdom and intellect and their own desires and what they think is best. A spiritual eldership, our only obligation is stewardship based on what God is saying. So the only obligation we have is to hear God and do what he's saying. It's it's not to discern what we think needs to happen. In fact, we talk about it, but I say if we ever impose our will on this church, we're, sin, we're sinning and we should be removed from the position that we have. And that goes for me too, and they, they can't actually... Uh, remo- they can fire me. And that would be more the word. Uh, and any elder could be removed by the other elders if we deemed that there was a reason to. And so we have our checks and balances, but the whole idea is it's not bored. Like we're not coming up with committees and trying to figure out what we think needs to happen here at the church. Really, our focus is what is God saying to us and how do we steward and move in, in that direction? And so every year we do a retreat uh, for the elders. And, and so it's kind of, we kind of have a regiment that just kind of was formed over the years, but we kind of gather we go out of town we, we 're in a place we go and and when we first get there, um, we uh, we eat because you, you can 't do anything until you eat and so and yeah and god 's in the middle of that and and then, after we eat, then we get on to the important things, <laughs> um, but we just kind of talk and we we kind of share just not trying to fix anything we 're just talking uh, then the next day we don 't talk at all, we fast and we pray. And at the conclusion of that prayer and fasting time, then we come together. And when we come together, then we just start saying, here's what God said to me. We're not trying to figure it out. It's just, here's what God said. And it's awesome when we do that because it always kind of, it kind of knits together. It always fits together. It always kind of, someone to say something and say, yeah, that's kind of what God told me. God told me this. And it starts, we start getting a whole picture. And so we spend, honestly, it, it sounds pretty simple, but it takes, I don't know, four or five hours to get through that. <laughs> And then we take a break and eat, because that's where God is. And um, remember, I mean, remember, was it Elisha? He's running, and, and the angel of the Lord wakes him, like, and says, eat some cake and drink, you know? I mean, you know, take a nap and eat some cake, take a nap and eat some cake, right? That's how I know he's a preacher. And so um, so I think God can be in that. But anyways, um, and, and then and then what we do then is we take everything that God said, and we've kind of got it all written down. And then we look for common themes and ideas, and then we we take all of that and move it into active steps that we should take. What should we do this year? How should we lead this year? How should we steward this year? And and so that's kind of the process. So what I want to share today, I shared all that with you just because I think that's good for you to know that if you go to church here, uh, that you know that's kind of how we're governed, or that is how we're governed. But also one of the common themes. In in all of that was movement, and different people said it different ways. They had different scriptures, but it was this idea that hey, the vision is good. Um, the the structure, in in a lot of ways, is good. It's still being built out as far as the structure of our church. Um, and, and so the, the tracks are set, and and this year we just move forward on the tracks. Like this is a year to move forward on the tracks. And, and so like part of that was talking about building the building, which we'll be talking about as the spring goes on and then be doing an initiative that will start right after Easter. Um, and we believe if everybody does their part and God does his part, we believe we can start construction uh, in the summer. And, um, and so, yeah, so you can pray that way. And if you have a $7 million check and you want to leave that in the offering today as your end of the year giving, then we'll start construction in February. And... Um, <laughs> And so, but, 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 you know, one of the common things was movement and, and there's a passage in, in Deuteronomy that I went to in my mind, Deuteronomy chapter one, as God was speaking to me and, and Deuteronomy chapter one is kind of a flashback. It's where they're about to go into the promised land, but, but Moses is recalling what he first told Israel the first time they were supposed to go in the promised land and didn't, right? Cause you know, the story, like, like, they're delivered from Egypt. They go to Mount Sinai. Then they leave Mount Sinai. They get to the Jordan. Then they send spies into the land and they're like, hey, there are big people in the land. And then they say, oh no, we can't go in. And then they spend 40 years uh, making an 11 day journey. Anybody ever felt like that? You know, one more time around the mountain, baby. We're just going one more time. (laughs) Like Sooner or later, we're going to get there. Anyways, 40 years and walking in a circle. And uh, part of that was to let the, the generation of doubters die out while, while, um, while giving birth, if you will, to a generation of people with faith. I think that's kind of a struggle that we all fight, really, we're trying to kill doubt, trying to resurrect faith, and, and this is the two things that have to happen in order for us to walk into what God has is, is promised. And so then they come back to the Jordan, in Deuteronomy 1, Moses is saying, now remember what I said the first time, essentially, or remember what God said the first time. Um, But I'm going to read from Exodus 33, which is where God said it the first time, because God was speaking to me out of those passages. And and so in Exodus 33, uh, verse 1, if you want to follow along, it says, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. And that that really, um, Deuteronomy says it uh, a little bit differently. Um, Deuteronomy says, you know, go and take possession of the land. But uh, Exodus 33 says, depart. And that was really what really stuck um, in my spirit. It says, depart and go up from here, you and the people uh, that came that I brought out of Egypt to the land, which I swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, um, saying to your offspring, I will give it. And I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Um, and this is go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, uh, and then it kind of turns and, and don't don't get too caught up on the negative, because I'll come I'll make it all make sense. But it says, But I'll not go up with you lest I consume you, for you're a stiff-necked people. Um, and so don't don't go too far into that, I'll explain. But verse 4 When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. I'll explain what those are. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people, You're a stiff-necked people, and if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you so now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from from Mount Horeb onward, meaning they never wore them again, and I'll explain what they were. Verse 7 says, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. All right, there's a lot in this text, and I'll kind of walk us through it, but Years ago, uh, Rick Warren wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life. The Purpose Driven Life. I like the book. I've given a lot of copies away of the book because I'm a purpose person. I think everybody has a purpose. I think you're designed on purpose, for purpose, by purpose. Right. You're a purpose. Every, every person has a purpose. In fact, I believe there was a purpose, and then God created the person for the purpose. That's actually the what I believe, because Ephesians 2.10 says he created us for works that he had prepared beforehand. So there was works. There was stuff to do. There was purpose, and then he created us to walk into purpose. Um but I, uh, I said something about two years ago. I was doing a series. It was a Christmas series in a way that it was framed by the Christmas story, but it was more about faith and promise. Um, and, and what I said is that I want every person to have a promise from God. Uh, because what I think God is telling them in Exodus is like, depart, we got to go. But, but He's actually calling them to a promise driven life. And that's what I call this message. To live promise-driven, because the purpose is based on the promise. And so to be purpose-driven is individual. To be promise-driven is a little bit more global. But because I have a promise, I have a purpose. Are you with me? And so I think we should actually live. In fact, I think when you, when you read the Bible, when you read Hebrews 11, it talks about these people of faith. And it even says, some died not having received the promise, but they were convinced of it right they were still driven by it even though because in their timing and in their life they couldn't receive the totality of it now here's the truth is they will receive the totality of it because God's promises are not limited to our time span but he said they were driven by the promise so hebrews 11 all these great men and women of faith they're all driven by promise they had purpose because they had promise and so what is a promise well well here's a promise from God God is not inside time right he's outside of time. God created time. We live inside of time. God is eternal. He is outside of time. And so God's viewing time, if you will. And so what God looks at is he looks at the the promise that he has, the purpose that he wants you to live, and he kind of goes into your future, if you will, where he sees you as you should be, and then he extracts a word from that, goes back in time to where you are and delivers the word of promise, which will drive you toward where he has destined you to finish. And so because of that, God wants us to be promise driven. We all are people of promise. In fact, Peter says, because we have these great and precious promises that come from God, all of us, every person in the Bible really that God has called, he is called according to promise. And so we are all supposed to live promise driven. And so when I look at Exodus 33, God is talking to a people of promise and he is encouraging them again to say, hey, here's what I promised and I want you to live according to what I promised. I want you to be driven by the promise that I've given you. And I think if you're going to live promise driven, I'll give you four things really quickly from this text. If you're going to live promise driven, here's what that looks like. Number one, if you're promise driven, you move forward. You move forward. See, there's no reason really for them to leave Mount Sinai if there is no promised land. Because in Mount Sinai, they were free from bondage. And they could just hang out there. It's, you know the interesting thing about promise? Promises are given for fulfillment. But you know what promises do? They frustrate you. Like I am the most discontent person that I know. I'm satisfied, but I'm never content. Do you know why? Because I have a promise. And what God has promised me is more than what I have. And because God's promised me is more than what I have, that promise frustrates me. And it frustrates me to give me the tenacity so that I'll pursue the promise. Without a promise, I could just be happy here. Like, in my own life, without a promise, I could be happy where I'm at when leading the church. I could be happy where we're at is a good place. There's nothing wrong with where we're at. It's comfortable. We have heating and air conditioning and comfortable seats and good worship. The only thing is that God has promised me a church that transforms a city, that changes a region, that people come from international locations to come and be trained, and then we teach them the kingdom, we would spin them around, and we send them out to build the kingdom. So what God has promised me is bigger than what we have. So while I'm satisfied with what we have, I sure am not content with what we have. Amen. It's good, it's just not the promise. And if I didn't have the promise, I could say, man, this is good, we'll just hang out here, I mean, I... Got a good salary, my kids are doing well, family's doing well, got a good staff, they're awesome, you guys are awesome, things are working, this is really good, it's just not the promise. I think the biggest enemy to what is great in your life is what is good in your life. And so I I love it, but the promise is what propels us forward, because I can't be satisfied, I can't be content with what I have if I have promise. If I don't have promise, I can be. I think most people are content to stay where they are for one reason. They do not know what God's promised them. Because if you knew what God promised you, you could not be content with where you are. Um, I, I love this passage, too, because of the grace that I see. and It's, it's like Old Testament. Like this is Exodus, this is where God gives the law in Exodus, but, but God says something to me It cracks me up, uh, because he says, it's time for you to go, I can't go with you or I'd kill you. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, that's awesome to me, because it's such a statement of grace. You remember when we used to play hide and go seek as kids? and we'd count to whatever it was, 50 or 100, and then we'd say, ready or not, here we come. Do you, do you, okay, was I the only person? that? Okay, y'all did play that game too? Oh, okay. If not, you understand the basic rules. You count and hide, you know, with your eyes closed. They hide. Ready or not, here I come. Then you try to find them. Basic rules, right? But we say, ready or not, here I come. And I think what God says in Exodus 33 that cracks me up and is so much a picture of grace, he says, you're not ready, but it's time to go. That's what he essentially says, like the promise is by grace and the way you get there is by grace. So you don't deserve to be where you're at and you don't deserve to be going where you're going, but you're not ready. It's time to go and I can't go with you or I'd kill you. So I'm going to give you an APS, an angelic positioning system. And this angel is going to leave you and drive out your enemies and take you into my grace, even though you don't deserve it. In fact, you're so screwed up. I can't go with you, but you're still going to get there because I promised it to you. Like, that's insane to me. Like, you want to talk about, we're sitting here singing, you are good. I'm like, you had no idea how good God is. Because God's sitting here and he's saying, you are so jacked up that if I tried to take this journey with you, I would smite you and turn you to dust. So you're not ready, but it's time to go because the promise that I gave you is by my grace. It's based on who I am, not on who you are. And the way you're going to get there is based on my grace. It's not based on how you're doing. It's based on who I am. And so you're not ready, but we're still moving forward because I promised it by my grace. I will grant it by my grace. And even if I can't go with you, I'll make sure you get there. (laughs) It's amazing to me. Uh, By the way, Moses intercedes and has a big talk with God and God decides to go with them. I think that's always helpful because Moses basically said, God, if your presence doesn't go, I'm not going to go. So God's in a conundrum. Well, Moses, I can't kill you. I can't kill them. Well, we'll all go together. And so (laughs) it's just amazing and promises not based on who we are, it's based on who he is. You know, there are some promises, here's the trick when it comes to promises, that if you could figure this out, you could write a book, and we would thank you for it. There are some promises that are so kingdom-centric that God will literally do them without your cooperation. Ready or not, here you go. (laughs) Right? And then there are other promises that will not happen without your cooperation. So there are some promises from God that that they're going to happen because God has willed it and it's just going to happen. And then there are other promises that there is no way they're ever going to happen without your cooperation. And here's the thing, most of the time we can't tell the difference between the two. It's just either way, it's, it's, it's the grace of God. And I think the amazing thing about the promise, can I give you a scripture? Um, Psalm 105, 19. This is talking about Joseph. And, and we know the story of Joseph. He's this young kid, and God gives him this dream, and his brothers are going to bow down before him. And he doesn't really understand what it's all about. And he kind of bu- gets built up in pride. And, you know, it didn't go well the first time, so God gives him another dream. So he says, Well, I'll just tell him again how great I am. <laughs> and next thing you know, Joseph has gone from wearing his coat of many colors. Uh, that his dad gave him, to um, being in a pit thrown in there by his brothers, to being sold as a slave, to, to being a slave in Potiphar's house, to being in a prison, and then finally gets to a palace. right? And, and it takes several years. I mean, it's it's like 30 years before Joseph is, is a teenager. I mean, it's 30 years. It's a journey. But here's what Psalm 105.19 says. Until the time that that Joseph's word from God came to pass, or God's word came to pass, however you want to look at it, the word of the Lord tested him. That interesting that the promise of God proves me. In fact, that word tested, it means to refine. So, so here's, here's what this scripture says. Remember how God goes into the future and he says, okay, here's how I see you. And then he comes back to where you are and said, here's a promise that'll get you to where I see you. Because what this actually says is until the time that God's word came to pass, The word that God gave him refined him. In other words, God gives you a promise to refine you into the person who can actually receive what he's promised. Like it's by grace, it's for grace, but God's promises to us actually change us or transform us into the people who can actually receive the promise that he has for us. And so all this happens because we choose to live promise-driven lives with promise. So what, what does the promise do? It tells me i got to move forward. I can't stay here. I can't be content. What does the promise do? It changes me. It transforms me. It proves me. How do I get a promise? It's just the grace of God. How am I going to reach a promise? It's just the grace of God. And in this big place of grace, the promise is changing me. Like God, Here's what God's telling Israel. You're not ready. Here we go. I think his thought was, I hope you'll be ready when we get there. And we know that they were like, no, no, there's giants. Yeah, we can't do it. And God's like, okay, well, we'll wander around in circles, and I'll raise up a generation who can believe me, and I'll let die, doubt die out, and then we'll try again. But the promise actually proves this. So God wants us to live uh, promise-driven. First Timothy 1.18, this is what Paul says to Timothy. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child Watch this, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. In other words, here's in accordance, I'm charging you based on promise. I'm admonishing you, I'm challenging you, I'm encouraging you based on promise and that by that promise that you may wage the good warfare. I think we live by promise and we war by promise. The reason some people don't win is they don't know what was promised. And all of this keeps us moving forward. So, promise driven, number one, we move forward. Number two, we live repentant. Or we live repentantly. I don't know if that's a word, but if you get a microphone, you can make words up. (laughs) (laughs) Exodus 33, verse 4, it talks about these ornaments. They are not Christmas ornaments, they are not hung on trees. It says, When the people heard that God wasn't going to go with them, they mourned and they would not. No one put on his ornaments. For the Lord said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. <laughs> that just cracks me up. I'm sorry. It's like God's like, I'd love to go with you. I'd kill you. <laughs> that may describe some relationships in the room. I don't Anyways, never mind. i um, love to go with you. I'd kill you. Uh, so now take off your ornaments that, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount onward, meaning they never wore them again. So, what were these ornaments? Well, the ornaments uh, were actually jewelry that they had gotten from Egypt. So, you know the story. God wants to deliver um, Israel from Egypt, and he sends Moses, and Moses says, Let, let my people go. And, and then there are 10 plagues that actually come to Egypt. Uh, 10 is always the number of testing in the Bible. Uh, that's why we give God a tenth of our income. It's a test. the The test is just proving whether or not He can trust us with more. That's really what that means. And and so, and so He gives a tenth. And so there are ten plagues. And the last plague um, was was the plague of the firstborn, meaning the firstborn of every house would be killed unless they had applied the blood of the lamb to the doorpost, right? And so that's Passover, right? why? Because God said, the first belongs to me, and you either redeem the first or you lose the first. So you put blood on the doorpost, you redeem the first, you don't put blood, uh, there's no blood of the lamb, you lose the first, right? And and I think this is, God gave us money because we all understand currency and money, and tithing is not about God needing money, it's more about what is first and redeeming and loss, and you know, people say, well, I can't afford to pay tithe. I'm like, I know, you either redeem it or you lose it. I mean, you're paying it, in some cases more. You're just paying it to, you know, the car repair shop or something like that. You're, you're paying it, but you either redeem it or you lose it. And the first always belongs to the Lord. It's the redemptive pers- portion. The first part is always the redemptive pers- portion. Jesus, the for- firstborn of all creation, the firstborn, the firstborn brethren, Right? The firstborn of all the brethren. He's the first, right? Alpha, Omega, first, last. First. Right? He was the redemptive portion. He was the first given to redeem all of us. Are you with me? Okay. So so there's the, the, the ten tests. And the last is this firstborn. And, and what happened when that happened, Pharaoh all of a sudden said, not only can you leave, we will pay you to go. That's pretty good. That's God right there. I mean, it's, God, it's only God that can take something that is holding you in bondage. And before it's over, that thing is paying you to leave. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's kind of like when, when, <laughs> when the Philistines captured the ark and they all had rats and tumors. Next thing you know they're paying paying Israel to take the art back. Like you have the art. We're building a new cart, get some new donkeys, mules, everything, oxen, you can have the thing. So, so um And so so then Israel takes the spoils of Egypt and now now it's jewelry or what we would call ornaments. And so all of a sudden God's like we can't move forward. We're stuck. We're stuck because you're stubborn. And, and so what, what were these ornaments that they, there's this moment, if you will, of repentance, and then they never wear them again. So what were these ornaments? Well, number one, it was things from Egypt. They were still hanging on to things from Egypt. They were still hanging on to like they're trying to move forward into the promise, but they're still hanging on to some stuff from Egypt. And God said, if you're going to move forward into promise, you're going to have to let go of Egypt. I remember um, uh, growing up being a teenager in the denomination in which I was in. I don't know what it was like in other denominations. I just know what it was my experience. But every time we would go to like a youth conference or a youth camp or whatever, I don't know why. And I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but every time we had a speaker, it was a drug addict or gang or something like that. And and they would get up there, and for 30 minutes, they would talk about how much money they used to have, the cars they used to drive, and the women they used to have hanging all over them. And and then the end would say, but now I've accepted Jesus, and Jesus is my light and salvation, and I don't have money, and I'm not married, and I have women, and I drive a Ford Pinto. But praise the Lord for his salvation and grace. And I'm sitting there as a 14-year-old like, brother, you sold me on Egypt. I don't care nothing about your Pinto where are the Mercedes at? I want the money and the cars. I don't think this worked out the way you thought it was going to work out, bro. Because you brag so much about all this stuff you had in Egypt. You sold me on Egypt. <laughs> and I think sometimes if we're not careful... We're out of Egypt, but we're still bragging about Egypt. We're still hanging on to Egypt. We're still looking back at Egypt. We're still hanging on to the stuff we have from Egypt. And what God's saying is Egypt can't go into the promised land. In fact, I would say this way. God delivered Egypt. He delivered the children of Israel from Egypt in one day. But it took him 40 years. It took him one day to get Israel out of Egypt. It took him 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. And you can be out of Egypt and still have Egypt all in you. And what God's saying is, you want to go in the promised land? We got to get Egypt out of you. And so he said, these are things you're holding on. The other thing is, is that the Egypt or, or these ornaments were kind of reveling in their past victory. Now, I want you to understand there is nothing wrong with testimony about victory from God. But a lot of times believers get stuck at the same place they are, kind of Mount Sinai. It's a good place. There's nothing wrong with God brought them there. God delivered them from Egypt to get them to Mount Sinai. But we need to understand the difference between, the, between being delivered from and being delivered to. See, they were celebrating being delivered from. God wanted them to understand they were delivered to. It wasn't a question whether or not they were delivered. The question was why were you delivered so that you could gloat over Egypt and talk about how wonderful you are because God liked you more than Egypt and God delivered you and you could kind of revel in the deliverance from, but God wanted them to look at what they were delivered to. And a lot of people get delivered from, and then that's where they stop because they don't understand they're delivered to. We're back to the, the reason people are not promise driven is they don't have promise. And when you're not promise driven, you're content to stay where you're at because you've been delivered from, and God wants you to be delivered. Um, see, if the promises of God do not lead me into trust, they will lead me into Entitlement. If the promises of God do not lead me into humility and trust and faith delivered to, they will lead me into entitlement delivered from. Greater than Egypt. And what you have to understand is that if if God is your servant, you'll live frustrated. Frustrated. And unfortunately, many times, because of the promises of God and and what God does in our life, pretty soon, we don't really say it this way, but God becomes our servant. And God's here to fix our problems and to bless us and to give us and to take care of us. And now this starts sounding like most of our prayers. Insert nervous laughter. And the reason, the reason we get frustrated when things don't happen, when the timeline is messed up, when God doesn't come through, we get frustrated because we think God's our servant and he's supposed to make our life work out okay. And when our life is not working out okay, we're like, hold up, God, where are you at? Hello. <laughs> I'm the chosen people. Because if God is our servant, we will always live frustrated. In fact, I would say if you are frustrated in your relationship with God, it may be that you've got the roles reversed. Because if God is our servant, we will live frustrated. If, God, if we are God's servant, we will live amazed. <laughs> See, when I adjust to yielding to him and I become his servant, then I'm protected from the arrogance and independence that actually violates the nature of God that would allow him to work in my life. Let me say that again because it was a lot. I See, when I adjust to my role of serving him and he is not obligated to serve me, then, then, then the yielding and submission and the surrender to him is what protects me from the arrogance and independence that violates his nature that, that, that keeps him from working in my life the way he wants to. Promise either moves me to entitlement or it moves me to trust, right? That's why I think we should have promise because we really understand promise. Promise is about God moving me this way and it keeps me in a place of trust and dependence on him where I don't have time to get caught up with how great I am because God has done these things for me. I'll just move on. I thought I would eventually preach it and say it one way that you would get really excited about it, but I can tell that's not going to happen. I'm just going to leave that one and move on. I've got some more. We'll try those out. (laughs) See, repentance is what always moves me towards kingdom. It is impossible to move towards kingdom without repentance because you grow up in a world that you are used to seeing and you're used to thinking based on what you see. You're used to understanding based on what your experience is, what you see, etc. So the first message that Jesus ever preached on the earth, repent. Why? Because God's kingdom is near. And what he's saying is, hey, the kingdom is now here, but you look at earth, think like earth, act like earth. And as long as you see earth, think like earth, act like earth, you get earth. So my message is that there's a different kingdom. There's a different power, rule, reign, and authority. But it, without repentance, you, you can't operate in it. So repentance is actually what moves us towards kingdom. That's why when Paul talks about the renewing of our mind in Romans 12, he's like the lifestyle of a believer is consistent repentance. And we've made repentance this one-stop where we say, God, forgive me my sins because I now know they're bad and I'm going to live for you. That's good. That's actually where a lifestyle of repentance starts. (laughs) And so when Israel is stripping off all these ornaments, they're saying, we're not going to think like slaves. We're not going to act like slaves. We're not going to revel in being delivered from. We're going to look toward what God has for us. And we're going to learn to think like God and act like God and live like God according to the promise of God that he has given us. And so for them, it was the initiation of repentance. Repentance actually means to think differently. It's not about thinking different thoughts. It's about learning to think differently. That's why Paul can say, count it all joy when you fall into trials. Has anyone ever thought that was exciting? No, we cry and moan. God, where are you? I'm just as guilty as you. How can he say count it joy? I don't understand because God thinks differently than you think. See, we think a life with no resistance is peace. God thinks a life where we constantly overcome prepares us for promise. Right, We think a life with no conflict is peace, and God thinks a life with conflict and his presence is peace. And so so to move forward, we've we got to leave some things behind. And part of what we have to leave behind is really the way we think. It's the stuff from Egypt that we're hanging on to. It's the way we think that we're hanging on to. Here's the, the third thing. A promise-driven life. If you're going to live promise-driven, then you have to seek the Lord. Um, In in Exodus 33, 7, it it says something interesting. Because it says, Moses went outside of camp and pitched a tent and called it the tent of meeting. It's interesting because if you watch God's directive, the, the tent of meeting was always in the center of camp. Israel always camped around the presence of God. So he would say, you know, set up the tent of meeting, and then he had a place for the 12 tribes of Israel all the way around the tent of meeting. So the tent of meeting was always in the center of the camp, not outside the camp. But now all of a sudden, temporarily, Moses says, hey, well, I'm going to take a tent and I'm going to move it outside of camp. And that's where we're going to meet with God for a while. We're not going to meet with him in the, in the center of camp. We're, we're going we're gonna to meet with him outside of camp. And I just think that when we're promise-driven, I don't know about you. I don't know about you. I can only speak to my experience, but trying to follow God, here's what I can tell you, that God's not always in the same place. Now, you may always be in the same place, but that doesn't mean God's always in the same place. In fact, when when I'm talking to to the worship leaders, I'm, I'm so grateful for them and, and all of them and their humility and the way that they lead, but we'll talk about them. like, you know, our job as worship leaders is to get in the room and then you can't really see, but you know, God's in the room and you start trying to feel to see where God's at in the room. Like what's God doing in the room? He's in the room and he's doing something, but he's not doing the same thing. And he may change. We do three services a weekend that may change by the service. And so the songs are a tool, but really all we're trying to do is figure out where God is and what God's doing in the room in the moment. Like, what is God revealing? Is God loving? Is God healing? Is God giving peace? Is God revealing something about him? Is God showing himself faithful? What is he doing in the room? And I found in my own life that I can go to the same place and pray every day, and that's not necessarily bad, but God's not always in the same place doing the same thing every day. And here's what Moses says. He's like, hey, in this season, it's going to cost a little bit more to seek God. Like God used to be at the center of your routine or used to be close enough to your home or whatever or your tent. But now if you want to meet with God, you've got to pack a day bag and journey outside of camp. Because camp's pretty big when you got a, a couple million people. <laughs> it takes a while to get outside of camp. Right? When camp is like Dallas, yeah. it takes a while to get outside of camp. Right, and so it's like, hey, maybe the normal way of seeking God is not the way we need to be seeking God. Maybe there's a different way to seek God. Maybe there's a more uh, 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 a way to seek God in this season that's going to net us more. Maybe God's wanting to show us something differently. Maybe God's wanting to do us something, and maybe God's just trying to see, hey, will you make the effort? Will you make the extra effort? Sometimes I think God plays hide and seek. I think He does. Because he wants to know, is he valuable and important enough that we would continue to seek him when we don't find him in the usual place? If we'll go beyond the norm and, and engage in, in a, a new level of, of seeking him, what, what does it really mean to seek the Lord? Well... It means that seeking the Lord becomes the first pursuit, the highest priority of our life. And can I just be honest? And you can look straight ahead, and Amen, or say nothing, but don't nudge or look around. But can I just be honest? For most believers, seeking the Lord is not the highest priority of their life. And here's here's the thing: we can lie to each other, but let's not lie to ourselves. Right, because because if I were to say, how many of you you know want seeing God to be the highest priority, we'd all lift our hands. How many of you seeing God's highest? We're in church, we'd all lift our hands. Church is where Christians come to lie, and so we all lift our hands. (laughs) Right, we do because brother, I'm praying for you. Oh, you're not. You didn't think about me since last week. Anyways, the point is, (sighs) (laughs) do you want it real? Do you want it feel good? Tell me what you want, and so. I found most people just want it real. Keep it real. Mmm, Jesus. And so, so truthfully, I think we want God, the pursuit of God to be the highest pursuit in our life. I think we do. I think our motives, I think our hearts are in the right place. But I don't think that he is. And the truth is, if we look at how we spend our time, how we spend our energy, if we look at how we spend our money, then we're going to find out really quickly maybe we want him to be the highest pursuit, but he's not. But here's the way you change is you get honest and say, you know, I've been to church one time in the last 10 weeks. He's probably not the highest pursuit of my life. I want him to be, but he's probably not. Like, don't be condemned by it. Do something with it. Right? Like, condemnation's never helped anybody. I've never seen condemnation, shame, or guilt produce repentance that was, that was life-giving at all. But truth can, if it's delivered with grace, like, hey, I understand you want, you're here because you want God number one in your life. There's no other reason for you to be here. The question is, is he really number one in your life? And if he's not, don't be condemned by it. Think about, well, what would I need to change? Like God's grace covers, it's good. But if we want him to be number one, let's not lie to ourselves. Let's say, you know what, God, I don't think you're number one. I want you to be, but you're not. God can work with that. Right? So what does it mean to seek the Lord? Well, Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me. Here's the promise when we really go, like if we leave camp to go to the tent of meeting, we're going to find him. Why? Because we went out there to seek him with all of our heart. You don't seek him with all your heart. I don't know if you find him or not, but if you seek him with all your heart, here's the promise, you will find him. He will be found by you. I think there are times times that God actually hides from us, or maybe I should say this way, he hides for us. In fact, if you look at Proverbs 25, verse 2, it says, that, that is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings to search out a matter. Who is God? He is God. Who are the kings? We are the kings. And here's what it's saying. God's saying, you know what? Sometimes I hide stuff that's really valuable to see who values it enough to find it. <laughs> like, like, I don't hide it from you. I hide it for you. But I hide it in such a way that the pursuit of it matures you to the place that when you find it, it's worth something to you. <laughs> and so I think this is what God's saying hey, will you go outside of the normal way of seeking me? Like, will it really be first? You know, Jesus said, Seek the Lord, seek first the kingdom. Like, it is supposed to be the highest priority. If it's really the highest priority, can you leave the routine of life and go outside the camp? Like, I've hidden some stuff out here, and if you value it enough, I'll show you. But but, but I've made the distance greater. I've made the effort greater so that I'll know you value it if you find it, and if you find it, you'll value it. And And then... So seek the Lord. And then here's the last thing. Possess the promise. Uh, Deuteronomy 1.8. This was the scripture that really the Lord spoke to me on the elders tree. It says, see, I've set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land. Do you see that? He didn't say, wait until I give it to you. Do you notice that? Go. Go. Like I, I've been in those churches and for time I used to think, oh man, you know, God gives you a promise and you just kind of sit down and wait on it. Okay, God, I'm waiting. I'm waiting on the Lord. Those that wait on the Lord, Lord, don't renew their strength. I'm just waiting on you, Lord. <laughs> I feel as strong as I I've been waiting for 20 years. I feel so strong, Lord. I don't have the promise, Lord, but I feel strong. I feel, oh, I'm going to run. We're weary. Mm, Lord, if I ever move, I'm going to run. Praise the Lord. But right now, I'm waiting on the Lord. You know I'm telling you the truth. But this says, this says look, go in and take possession. It doesn't say go and wait. It says go and take possession. Go, go and take possession. But like, there's something, because we have promise, we are driven by, and there's something that we do. We are cooperating. God's saying, hey, I've given you the land, right? I've given you the land. You got to go take, you got to go out. You got, you, you, go, you, go, 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 right? Go take possession of it. Like, I was like, you got a new car in the parking lot, now you can sit here and pray for the car, or you can go get in it. Um, the first thing is obviously you have to believe the promise or you will never go. Right? Like if you're not going to take possession, it could be because you're waiting on the promise. But God's actually saying, no, we're not waiting. We're going. There's waiting. There's going, waiting, going. We're not waiting. We're going. We're going to take possession. If you, if you really believe. Uh, Israel couldn't enter the promised land. They couldn't enter the promised land basically because of two things. Um, Number one, because of what they saw, and number two, because of how they thought. They couldn't, like, here's the land flowing with milk and honey. And then they said they brought it back a cluster of grapes that had to be carried between two men. That's some big grapes. (laughs) That's probably where the California raisins came from. I ain't lying. That's a big grape. And I'm going to say there's milk and there's honey and there's that many grapes, there's peanut butter. Think about it. What ties all those together? Peanut butter and milk, peanut butter and honey, peanut butter and grape jelly. Right? You know I'm preaching now. Praise God. Somebody for Christmas, somebody in the church brought me a big tub of peanut butter for Christmas. It took me a year to eat that much peanut butter. I did a wedding one time, they paid me with part of part of the way they paid me, they gave me a big tub of peanut butter. I was so happy. I'm like, I'm good for the year. I'm I'm stored up, buddy. Bring on the famine. I got peanut butter. That's what I learned in mission trip. On mission trip, you always take peanut butter. Because it can keep you alive. And you can enjoy it. Don't take dehydrated food, you can't enjoy that, but you can enjoy peanut butter. Anyways, so there's this land flowing milk. And so why didn't they go in? Well, number one, they believe what they saw instead of what God said. Is that not what we still deal with today? Like God gave me, God, we're going to take the land. We're going to take the land. We're praying, got our eyes closed. Oh, Jesus, we're going to take the land. we we'll open our eyes. Oh, my God, there's a giant. We're going back to the wilderness. I ain't going in no, Jesus, uh-uh, that can't be God at all. You know, that's what we do because we've been raised in this world, in this earth, according to this earth is why repentance is so important because repentance is where I believe God over what I see, where I believe God over what I see. And, and here's what I've found. It usually never looks like what God said. I found you, you, what you see never really looks like what God said. Have you found this major? God said it. Doesn't look like it. God, are you sure you said it? Yeah, I said it. No, God, doesn't look like it. You said it was going to rain, but there is no cloud in the sky. And God said, what are you going to believe, what you see or what I said? And the people that inherit promise, the people that take possession of the land are the people that choose to believe what God said over what they see. The next thing is how you think, and specifically how you think about you, because most of the time we disqualify ourselves from promise because we think about us the wrong way. Because this is what they said: "Hey, to them, to the giants, we look like grasshoppers." Now, the giants never said they look like grasshoppers. In fact, by the time they get across the Jordan, all the giants are scared of them, especially after Jericho, because after you watch the city vaporize, you start thinking, "What kind of juju these people got?" You understand? But they said, no, in our own sight, we are but grasshoppers. And so they thought about it. See, so so here's what they're, they're considering themselves and they're considering what they see instead of considering what God said and considering who God is. They're looking at who they are and what they see instead of who what God said and who God is. God's never going to call you to enter a promise that you can get without him. The whole point is that it drives you to a relationship with him to inherit the promise. The promise is not as important as the relationship by through or through which the promise comes. (laughs) And so here's the thing. You got to believe it. Here's the other thing. There are battles ahead. There are battles. You know what? Here's something interesting about a promise from God. It attracts opposition. It It attracts opposition. Opposition. The moment you get, people are like, man, I don't know, I got this word from God, man, everything went wrong. Yes. <laughs> yes, it did. Right? right? My grandfather used to say it this way if you're not running into the devil, it's because you're running the same direction as him. Right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, <I love> <laughs> but if you're running a different direction, then you're probably running into him. It's okay because greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. You're going to get to win, but you're probably going to run into a giant or two along the way. And so don't think because I got a promise I can put it on cruise control and it's just going to know. I'm going to have to go take possession of a land that is controlled by giants. I have to take possession of a land that has fortified cities. And this is what God said. It's so crazy to me. He said, I'm going to send you into the promised land and, and I'm not going to drive out all the enemies. I'm just going to drive them out one at a time. It's like, well, God, why you can't drive them all out? Why you got to drive? Because, because it's, if I drove them all out the land, the promise would be too much. You wouldn't be ready to inhabit all of it. So I drive it out piece by piece so that you're firmly embedded and grounded in every part that you possess. So there are battles ahead. And then the last thing is you, you possess it. So you believe it, you battle it out, you possess it. You possess it. Um, Hebrews 6.12 says, uh, we, we don't want you to become lazy. <laughs> it's a nice scripture. <laughs> <laughs> but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherited what was promised. It's faith and endurance. The The word there, patience, faith, faith and endurance, faith and endurance. In other words, here's the whole thing to possess. This is faith and endurance. So, so how do we, we, we're not waiting. We're, we're possessing, but we have faith. We have endurance. How does this work? Well, it always comes down to these things we call next steps. Like if I'm going to possess something, I have to go. Like remember he said, depart and and leave. See, You, you can't stay and leave. If you're going to leave, you go, right? Deep theological truth there. And so if you're going to leave, what are you leaving to? You're going to leave. You're going to possess it. And so now I have a part to play. Well, What part is that? Well, that's the works. Faith without works is right. So to say I have faith and I'm just sitting here waiting on the promise, hoping I'm going to possess it. I guess I'll still be waiting on the promise when Jesus comes back. But what he's saying is, no, now, listen, you got to believe it. All right? You're going to have to battle it out, but now you're going to have to possess it. You're going to have to put works with your faith. What is God telling you to do to move forward to what he's promised? What's God asking you to do so that you can move toward what God wants to do in your life? What is the promise for you, and what is the step you have to take? To be honest, all the things we call next steps here at the church, I don't mean this in a bad way, in a way they're training wheels. Right? So the goal is you take the next steps like you you get in a group you lead a group you get on a dream team those are all training wheels and and some people look back well that's for the people who are the most committed or the people that are all in this church thing or that's for the core people that's for those people no no those are training wheels for all people because as you start taking next steps you start learning what your individual next step is. See, these are all Christ-centered, kingdom-centered. Serving is kingdom-centered. Giving is kingdom-centered. Going is kingdom-centered. Leading is kingdom-centered. All the next steps we have are kingdom-centric. They're something everyone should engage with, but they're the training wheels to get you locked in on what is your next step for the promise God has given you. See, the way this all works is if we all engage in our next step for the individual promises that God has given each of us, it will produce the corporate promise that God has given the church. God is all about win-win. Like the way we get to where we want to go as a church is all of us get to where we need to go individually. That's a good word. And so we're supposed to be promise-driven. I want everyone to be promise-driven. If you're promise-driven, you're moving forward. You're living repentantly. You're seeking the Lord and you're possessing the promise. Why don't you stand with me? I'll call that good.